A recent uh, article uh, appeared in a psychology journal, and it stated the following, you might argue obvious, certainly the following stark truth. It said this, that today we live in an increasingly angry world, an increasingly angry world. The author went on to say this. She said, it is increasingly the case that not love, nor joy, but anger is the dominant socially expressed emotion. Anger, the dominant socially expressed emotion. We know this to be true, do we not? Everywhere we look, we see anger. We see it even this weekend in the Brexit affair, don't we? Increasing fury and hatred from both sides. We see it in the political situation in the United States as well. There's increasing polarization, is there not? And there is hatred. And where else do we see anger? We see anger in here, don't we? Friends, what about maybe that road rage you had a few weeks ago? What about that incredible impatience you had with your family, with your spouse, with your children? What about that colleague, that co-worker that is just driving you up the wall just now? There's indignation, isn't there? There's bitterness, there's fury, there's rage, there's anger, and there's, it's everywhere we look today. Now, here's a thought for you. It's a question for you. Is that really all that big a deal? I mean, there's bigger fish to fry, is there not? I mean, our, our world and our society is running away from, from biblical values, and it's, it's trying to kick out marriage, killing the unborn child. Try to redefine what, what the sexes are. So, anger, you know, our rage. I mean, is that really worth us getting concerned about as Christians. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. And here, we're not just going to see whether anger is a big deal. This morning in our time together, we will see this, whether your anger, my anger, whether it really is a big deal and a big deal to God. And so I would ask you that you would have Matthew 5 open in front of you, these verses from verse 21. And we're going to notice here and focus on three elements of this short section of Scripture. Let me give you just the first just now. We see here the true nature of the contrast. Let's think about that together. The true nature of the contrast. Now, um, we had a break from Matthew chapter 5 last week where Reverend Perkins was preaching. But if you're part of the congregation, surely you remember where we are, do you? Where are we? Where's Jesus? Jesus is on this hill and he is preaching. And do you remember the last thing we saw? Jesus has just revealed that, and it was a shocking thing, wasn't it? Do you remember that he's revealed that there must be a deep righteousness a different righteousness, a heart righteousness must happen for mere entry and admission to the kingdom of God. Do you remember this from two weeks ago? Hopefully you do. Well, if we are going to get to grips with what we've got here, you have to appreciate this. That what you've got in front of you, what we've just read in this section, 
is the first of six, what we might call antithesis sections in Matthew 5. Now, everyone follow me on this. So verse 21 to 26, what's that? This is the first of six sections where Jesus is going to reveal to you and me what this heart righteousness should look like and lead to. But how is he going to do that? He's going to reveal what this righteousness leads to by setting up before your eyes contrasts. Six antithesis sections. Six contrasts. So, what's the question you've got in your mind? What question must we ask? Well, if Jesus is going to teach us by way of a contrast... What's the contrast? Like, what is he contrasting his teaching with, okay? Now, you've got to listen to what I'm going to say here. We're going to be camped out for six weeks or so on this. You've got to get this. Listen. Here, Jesus is not contrasting his teaching with the Old Testament law. Everyone got that? He is not contrasting his teaching with the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law. And that's what we could think. Because what could we think when we hear verse 21? You see it? Do not murder. Verse 27, next section. Do not commit adultery and so forth. What could we think? We could think, oh, Jesus is saying, okay, that's what the Old Testament said. That's what the Old old Commandments, that's what they said. I'm going to teach you something new. I'm going to teach you something better than that, okay? And Jesus is not doing, not contrasting his teaching with the Old Testament law. And this is so essential, so important. I want to prove it to you. Okay, so we all remember, do we, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Boys and girls in the church, you listen to me just now. Do you remember Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Do you remember the story? Good. Nods of heads. What happened? So Satan went to Jesus and he tried to tempt Jesus to turn Stone and rock into bread. That's right. Now, how did Jesus respond? What, what was Jesus' weapon, boys and girls? Every time there's a temptation, Jesus responded with the Bible, with Scripture. Now, wait for the boys and girls and for the rest of us. How does Jesus phrase things when he has scripture in view, when he's talking about the Old Testament, what does he say to Satan every single time? When he's talking about the Old Testament text, what's the phrase that Jesus uses every time? Do you remember it? It is written. Isn't that what Jesus says when he's talking about the Old Testament text? It is written. It is written. Now, look at verse 21. What does he say here? What does he say? Does he say it is written? No, he says He says in verse 21, you have, it's not it is written, but you have heard it said. So is everyone with me? You're following this. Jesus here is contrasting himself not with the Old Testament law, but with something that is spoken, something that is said, something that is taught about the law. Yes? Anything more? Okay, do this with me. See if you can find verse 43. Have a look to verse 43. Now, if you know your Bibles well, it's a real test, this one. As I read out verse 43, see if anything jumps out at you. Look at verse 43. We could use other examples, but let's take this one. So Jesus says, one of these six sections, he says, 
You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, do you know your Bible? What, come on, what jumps out at you about that, that phrase there? Love you. Isn't it this? That the Old Testament never says that. Does it? I mean, okay, there's a truncated idea about loving your neighbor. It doesn't say as yourself. Does the Old Testament ever say, ah, it's all right to hate your enemy? It doesn't. And do you know what? If we were to look at the other six antithesis sections, if we were to look at it and find detail, you would find, okay, there's divergence from the Old Testament. There's differences to the Old Testament. Do you see the point? Jesus is not contrasting himself here with the Old Testament text. No. With something somebody is saying about the Old Testament text. And then do you want a clincher? Do you want a clincher? Well, think about the context. Were you here two weeks ago? Do you remember I was up the front and I was, I got everyone to pick up their notice sheets two weeks ago. You remember? And what was going on? We were looking at the seraphs, the tiny little marks, weren't we? At the, the edge of letters. And we can remember, I'm sure, the point. What had Jesus said? He had said, we've just read it, he had just said, not an iota, not even a dot, a mark of the law is going to pass away. Do you remember Jesus saying this? Well, think about the logic of this. I mean, think about it. Jesus is hardly one moment going to speak about the enduring, eternal authority of the word of God. One moment, then next breath. It's hardly likely to contrast his teaching with the Old Testament law. I hope from the bottom of my heart, because it is so important for this sermon series, I hope you get the point. What is Jesus not doing? He's building up a contrast, but he is not contrasting his teaching with the Ten Commandments, with the Old Testament law. Are we on the same page? Have we got it? Well, great. We know what Jesus is not doing. <laughs> so what is Jesus doing here in this section? I'll tell you what, I know I've got you to jump a little bit, jump about a wee bit in the text, but do one more time with me. If you look at verse 20, please. And if the boys and girls could look at verse 20 as well. And I want us all to think about who Jesus has in view as he enters into these contrast sections. Who is he thinking about as he goes into this section? So let's look at verse 20. Boys and girls, you look at the text too. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and who else? Unless your righteousness exceeds that, who is Jesus thinking about here as he goes into these antithesis sections, these contrast sections? We see it, don't we? What is Jesus doing? What is he about to do? He is contrasting his teaching with that of the Pharisees. And we understand, don't we, what was happening in the first century world. These Pharisees were, were getting up in the synagogues and on the street and they were teaching what? What were they teaching? A reduced and watered down version of God's holy law. We understand that, don't we? Oh, you want a divorce? Fine. Still pleasing in, in God's sight. Still righteous in the eye. You want to hate your enemy? You want to hate your end? Fine. You see it? And what was Jesus about to do here? He is about to blow this up. Blow it apart over the next few weeks, friends. 
we are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly and firmly contrast himself with that very narrow, pharisaical idea of the law. What is Christ about to do? He is about to expound the true depths, the standards, and the glory of the Old Testament text. Now, before we move on, is there anything here for us? Well, I think there is one very popular misconception that I've got to address before we move on. It's one you've probably heard before, because this is the mistake that we could very easily make. That here, yes, Jesus Christ is about to, for you and I, about to expound the, the, the law, the Ten Commandments. He's about to, to show us the real standards of righteousness, but simply to point people to their need of him. Now, do, do you see it? The yes, Jesus is going to show us what it, what, 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 what do not murder means and what coveting means and so forth. But why is he doing this? Why is he doing it? Only so that people will see that we cannot keep the law ourselves and we will run to Christ and flee to Christ. Now, do you see the problem with that narrow view of what Jesus is doing? Who is he speaking to? Do you remember the first sermon in the series? The Lord Christ is addressing us. He's addressing you. He's addressing people who are already trusting in him. So if you are a Christian, I want you to hear this loudly and clearly. Get this of nothing else this morning. These sections, they exist not just to expose our need. They exist to encourage holy and godly living. What is Christ Jesus going to do in these next six sections? He's going to show us what this deep righteousness, this heart righteousness should lead to in your life. Do you understand what Christ is about to do? He's about to reveal the characteristics that should mark your Christian life. A life that must be lived for the glory of God. A life, praise him, that is lived under the reign of Christ. So this is a contrast, and it's a contrast with the Pharisees, and it's a contrast to inspire Christian living. Okay, second thing we've got to consider here is the true nature, not of the contrast, but the true nature of the command. All right, that's the second heading. Everyone got it? The true nature of the command, because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking sometime or other we've got to get to the text here. You know, I've been speaking very generally about the next six sections, the next few weeks. Sooner or later, we've got to get to the topic, the theme. Do you remember from the intro what the topic is this morning? We're thinking about anger, anger. Well, maybe again, the boys and girls uh, can help with this. So I'll put the test, boys and girls, because I'm a cruel man. So I'll read out a phrase here. And you've got to tell me what it is. You've got to tell me at least if it is familiar and rings any bells. Okay, boys and girls? So you ready for it? You better listen. We've just read it. You shall not murder. Now, what's that? Have you heard it before? Yeah, that's a good starting place. Um, what is it? One of the What? Yes, one of the Ten Commandments. Right, boys and girls, here's the real test. What number 
Which commands that? Six. I told him before he came out to church. <laughs> so the sixth commandment. Now here's the, the reality with that. Uh, what seems to have been happening in the ancient world that the Pharisees were teaching a very, 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 very narrow, truncated view of the sixth commandment. Now please hear this. They were teaching that you only broke the sixth commandment if you had committed the physical act of homicide, premeditated murder, you understand only murder in cold blood broke the sixth commandment. And then if you broke the sixth commandment, you were only merely to face human justice, human court. There's your pharisaical view. Now, I wonder what you think about that. Now, maybe some of us are thinking, well, actually, that's how I've always thought about the sixth commandment, Andy. You know, like physical murder and then you face court and punishment. That's what it's, that's what, isn't that certainly what cultural Christianity comes to Matthew 5 with? They think, right, okay, you do not murder. That's it. Physical act is homicide, premeditated murder. Now, if you are thinking like that, doesn't it absolutely and truly take your breath away to hear the scope of what God's word has sent you this morning? Because, friend, what does Jesus Christ declare before you in, in his word today? Not only does he speak here about divine justice, you can't have passed you by that he speaks about the fires of hell here. But what else does he say? Did you notice his wording? He says that we are, now listen to the words, we are guilty before God. And we are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. If at any point in our life we have been inflamed to, aroused to anger with another person. The Lord Jesus Christ saying to his people, saying to you that anger breaks the sixth commandment. Before God anger is murder. Doesn't it? Doesn't it move us? Doesn't it make us think? But perhaps we have to deal with an objection at this point. Because maybe you're thinking, nah, it can't be that, man. It just can't be. I mean, it can't be just anger. I mean, it must be anger that leads to murder or anger that leads to violence at least, right? I mean, it can't be anger. And I say back to you, but look at the text. Look at it. Look at verse 22 and see how Jesus unpacks the ideas of anger. He says to you that we are guilty of breaking God's law if we insult someone. And it's, it's, the, word, it's the idea of raka. I'm sure you've heard before. Have you? The idea of calling someone empty-headed, calling them stupid. But then, then look on, carry on. I mean, it's just, I mean, you see? He says we're also breaking of, breaking, guilty of breaking the law if we call someone a fool. And that's the Greek word moros. From where we get the idea of somebody calling somebody a, a moron. I'm saying to you, like, you don't have the narrow pharisaical idea of what Jesus is saying here, of what Jesus is, 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 is claiming here. You understand this? That if we are inflamed to anger, okay, there's a righteous anger, but 99 times out of 100, if, there, if we are aroused to anger, inflamed to anger, inflamed to fury, then what, what do we become before God? We become killers. Killers in God's sight through anger. 
What's First John 3, 15? Everyone who hates his brother is for God. What's the word? Everyone who hates his brother is a, a murderer. I don't know about you this morning, but I'm, I'm, I'm standing here. And even though this is familiar to me, this is still shocking. So perhaps we, we have to dig even further in our objection. Do we not? Do we not have to think about the logic? Because again, maybe you're saying, but, but this doesn't seem fair at all. Is that your objection? Like you're saying, well, anger is one thing. But to be rendered and reckoned by God as a murderer, I mean, those things do not seem to link up at all. Those things, these, these anger and murder seem separate. This does not seem just. How can this be, God, that you would reckon me a murderer for anger? Well, to answer that question, I have to ask you to do this. I have to ask you to consider your own life. And I really want you to Consider what that, what is going on in your heart when you have found yourself aroused to fury and wrath and anger. What's going on there? Like what about that person um, who really, really wronged you a few years ago? Or kids? What about that real fury with your mother? Or again, that colleague and that co-worker driving you mental, driving you mad. What's going on there in your own heart? Isn't it true that that anger at its very core is a desire to rid your life at that moment of that person? Isn't it? What's that anger? You want shot at that person. You want that person away. You want that person out of your face, away, gone. Isn't it true that very often that anger leads to character assassinations and you want to kill that person's reputation? I mean, what is the, the very bottom line here? In that anger, we, if we're honest and truthful with ourselves, we wish that person harm. In fact, what do we do? In our anger, we wish that person dead. And then we see it and it shocks us and it kills us. Because what is true of us when we are aroused to anger? That we are correctly and rightly reckoned as murderers. And reckoned as such by the God who has promised that he will judge the earth. I don't know about you, but this morning I feel the, the weight of my sin. Do you not feel it? Do you not sense your sin? I think I can state without fear of contradiction that every single one of us in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, what is true? We've broken this. We've broken this command. We are all, every one of us, guilty before God as transgressors of his holy and perfect law. So we see the true nature of the contrast and we see the true nature of the command, but we end with the true nature of the consequences for our lives. I hope you have uh, followed thus far. We've seen that in these next sections, over these next, please be here, because we have seen Christ will reveal what heart righteousness in the kingdom of God should look like and lead to, and he's going to show us it by a contrast. 
with the Pharisees teaching about the word. Then we've got much more specific in the second point, didn't we? And we saw that this junction, do not murder, is broken by our unjust anger. But what do we cry out now if we are feeling the weight of our sin? We cry, Lord Jesus, help us. What do we do as your people and Christians? How do we respond to this? Well, there's a little word, a tiny little word that I love in this text before you. I wonder if you'd look at it just at the verse, uh, first word of verse 23. It's a real hinge and it's a change here, verse 23. The first word. Do you see it? Just the word so. Oh, it's just, oh, it's such a welcome word, isn't it? Because Jesus has just shown us our sin and it, we feel it. And then he says, so. And now he's going to show us the people of God, how to respond. So welcome. Now, did you notice in the reading that Jesus goes into two illustrations, pictures, from verse 23 to verse 26? Interestingly, they're not so much illustrations that deal with our anger, but anger against us. I mean, it's still the idea of conflict, but the illustrations are both about anger towards us. So let's deal with these two illustrations. We'll do, deal with it one at a time. The first is a church. Well, it's not really, it's a temple, but we'll call it a church. So would you look at verse 23 with me? I'll give you a moment to find that first illustration, verse 23. Just skim over it. Now, do you see the idea? So it's a a person who is involved in the formal worship, corporate worship of God, comes before God, and then imagine that they're at the church, and they're at church here this morning, and it occurs to them, they remember what? They remember that conflict, the anger that they have had, the anger that against them, this conflict. And what is the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ, if you think about it, it's, it's a dramatic instruction. The Son of God, the Lord Christ, says, if you remember you have conflict, stop what you're doing, go and be reconciled, and then come back. I wonder this morning if you see the lesson there, do you? Surely it is this for you. A lesson about the priority of dealing with conflict. Like we, we, we think, don't we, in a reformed church of all places on earth, we think that corporate worship is the be all and end all. It's the number one thing. In many ways it is, of course. But what is Christ saying? No. He's saying, in a sense, even more important than this is us ensuring that our relationships are correct outside, that there's reconciliation if, if there is bitterness. In our, and, and do you see why? Do you? That since our worship is hindered by the bitterness of our heart. Our prayers are hindered. Our praise is hindered by anger and wrath. That's why Jesus is saying, if there is conflict in your life, have it resolved. He's saying to you, act. Normally, I do not want people to leave the service. But is it speaking to you? And then if there's a picture about church, look at the second picture. We move from the church to the court. Now, let's do this together, since we're drawing things to a conclusion. Let's look at verse 25. Let's read verse 25 together. Verse 25. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser, for you are going 
uh, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. And I again ask you whether you see the lesson from the Lord Jesus. If the first picture was about priority, what is that about? That is about, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the sheer urgency of us being reconciled to our fellow man. We are not encouraged by Jesus Christ just to act if there is conflict with other people. Jesus Christ here is encouraging us to act and act now. He wants from you swiftness of feet. We go, we be reconciled. What is Ephesians chapter 4? What does it tell us? We are not to let the sun go down on our anger. We act and we act quickly. And I, and I implore you, Christian friends in here this morning, Not just to hear the sermon, but to follow it up with godly activity and godly action. You hear the message of the sermon. You do, don't you? You hear the message of the section of scripture. It is that the righteousness of the kingdom of God is a righteousness of relational calm. We are the children of God. You understand Romans 12, 18, what it says to us, as much as this is possible, so far as it depends on us, what are we to do as Christians? Each one of us, we are to live peaceably with all. And then we'll close with this last fleeting and brief thought. And it is to the people in the room uh, who are who have never looked to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And I wonder, um, although you perhaps have been to London City Presbyterian Church uh, before, have you? And you've heard appeals to those people who we call, you know, unbelieving people. You maybe heard this a, a million times, have you? I would ask that you would listen to me here. Like this, this sermon is, is so much in, directed from the Lord Jesus Christ to, to Christians and the, the call is to the people of God to, to be, make sure, you know, if you're going to live a life pleasing to God, be reconciled to your fellow men. But you understand if you're, if you've not trusted in Christ, you understand that there is this massive, massive matter that has to be attended to first by you. You understand that first you must be reconciled to a holy and a perfect God. And this is not easy for you to hear, and it's not very easy for me to say. But I, I need you to understand where you are and, and what's happening here, spiritually speaking. Just now, outside of Christ, your life is moving. You would agree with me that it's moving quickly. But if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are moving swiftly towards a place where you will outside of Christ, in death, without question, you will stand in a dock before all of the world, before all of the inhabitants of the earth, you will stand before God and outside of Christ, it is sure of you that you will be declared as a murderer guilty. And you will be set to faith the judgment for that crime. And as awful as that is, and as desperate as we are for you to hear that, even more so, 
I long for you to hear where hope is available. Because what has God done? What has the Lord Jesus Christ done? It is truly magnificent to consider that he has lived amongst us and he has met the standards of the law. Isn't that amazing? And then what has happened? By our anger, we have murdered him. Isn't that true? That the Lord Jesus Christ in his death has gone to the cross and there at Calvary, consider the spiritual reality of it, that the Lord Christ has exhausted all of the righteous fury of the Father at our unjust anger and bitterness and antagonism. And then the Lord Jesus Christ is this very day risen, victorious over death and over sin. And and then you say, but what now? What do I do? How do I respond? Listen to me. If you will today repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is sure of you. You will be in Christ saved from the fire. You will be saved from the fury of divine justice and you will be by Christ's work reconciled with God, you will be at peace with your creator in Christ. Is that not everything? Is it not worth you this morning bowing before the almighty creator God? And who is he? He is a God who is slow to anger. And for us, praise him, he's a God abounding in steadfast love. Let us pray. Our hearts are black and broken, O God. This is so clear to us from Matthew chapter 5. To consider that each one of us has transgressed your law by our unrighteous fury towards others, our wrath, our anger that we are reckoned as murderers in your sight. And to save your people, Lord God, you have allowed it to be that your very own precious beloved son has been murdered through the anger of ungodly godly men. Lord, we thank you so much for the accomplishments of the cross. We thank you for your character. But how we long that you would today reveal just how necessary and how effective is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who have been previously unbelieving. We commit them to you, Lord God. And we confess our sin in Jesus' name. Amen.